Greetings, church. My name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Would you please open your Bibles and meet me in the Gospel according to Luke? We're in the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you are in the New Testament, you'll see Matthew and Mark. You'll hit Luke. And if you get to John, go back to the left. If you've saved a place in Romans, then go back through Acts, past John, and then you will hit Luke. This will be our text as we consider the Advent season um, about expecting and learning to rightly yearn for not obviously the, the first coming of Christ, but through the story of the first coming of Christ, we learn to anticipate his second coming. Um, and in, I think this is no doubt a really important time for us to be considering that kind of biblical expectancy, that kind of anticipation because as a global community, things have never been more complex. Particularly in our lifetimes, uh, things have never been less simple. The complexity of the life that we have endured the past uh, nine, ten months, moving on into a, a new year here very soon, uh, is unlike anything that we've been through. Not only the global pandemic, but the uh, racial injustice that we have seen on clear display, continuing to remind us of the need for reconciliation that we have in a holistic way in our country and in our church. Uh, not only so, but the politically divisive season that we are still in the middle of. And uh, at least in my lifetime, nothing like that have I experienced personally before, whether with friends, family, and as a global community. Uh, but certainly the pandemic has weighed heav heav heavily upon all of us and has colored everything with an incredible tension and complexity. Um, and now I believe that we are just shy uh, of 1.5 million people, 1.5 million souls who have been lost over the course of this virus. Um, and so we, we continue to be in this space that really for Christians should be very familiar to us. But I, I think that we're feeling it in a fresh way be, because of the complexity and because of the number of things that are mounting up in this season. Because this is about the time of year where we, we start thinking about the warm, fuzzy songs that we like to sing and the, and the wonderful times with family and friends and the kinds of treats that we like to eat and the kind of songs that we like to sing when we come together as a church. And in many respects, some of, some of these things are incredibly good and helpful and hopeful and fun. But... But usually, I rather should say, sometimes the Christmas season is used to pacify reality. It's used to block away the things that we don't really like about our lives. So we, um, in, in many ways, get to enjoy these little plastic bits of joy that, that distract us for a season from the things that are really troubling our souls, the things that are really making our lives um, painful and, and difficult. But we don't have that luxury this year. We don't have that luxury of merely putting the emotional or intellectual blinders on, if you will, but we, we have to walk in this space that countless Christians before us have walked in faithfully. We, we've, we speak often about the, the idea that as Christians, we are always celebrating and we are always sorrowful. Uh, this is because Jesus, uh, in John's gospel, in chapter 16, verse 33, reminds us that, that in this world, we're going to have trouble, but he says, fear not because I've overcome the world. And so we're living in that space. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and he, he writes in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that we are always rejoicing 
and always sorrowful. And so there's a complexity in our identity as followers of Jesus in this world that, that we're facing in a unique and very palpable way, perhaps some of us as followers of Jesus for the very first time. But this is really a clear picture of who we're always supposed to be. Men and women who live in that space of celebration and of sorrow. And this is, this is who we are. And so in this Advent season, we're, we're going to come up against that complexity of our identity as followers um, of God. Because in God's kindness, our sorrow and our suffering even open us up to experience a kind of joy that, that is sustaining, that is enduring. See, the coming of Christ is a story of both of those things. It's a story of celebration and it's a story of sorrow. And in the middle of that, the gospel of Luke is here for us. Luke is clear from the very beginning. He is writing Luke, he is writing this book that would bear his name so that a man named Theophilus, and, and as a result, any who read it would have certainty. Because when we're always celebrating and always sorrowful, we're always living in this tension, we long, our hearts do, for a kind of certainty that, that, that helps us to endure in the suffering and, and, and helps us to keep our eyes on the glory of God in the middle of our celebration. And so we need this kind of certainty. And so this is how he opens up uh, his gospel account, Luke does. Luke chapter 1 Verse 1 says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been uh, accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all, clo- all, have, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, there it is, certainty concerning the things that have, that you have been taught. So Luke is writing to an acquaintance, someone who is likely searching for the strength to believe, to trust this thing, to give his life over to this thing, to, to ground himself in a reality, an assurance, a certainty of the hope of Jesus Christ. See, Luke records the, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus so that Theophilus would find what he's looking for. And so you and I, along this, this road of celebration and sorrow, particularly this year, but truly in all of life, can find an assurance, can find a hope in Jesus. And this is why Luke is writing this. And so it's not a surprise then that that's the focal point of the first part of Luke's correspondence, that there is this uh, battle, if you will, this juxtaposition of belief and doubt, a belief and doubt in the middle of the sorrow and the celebration. And so this Advent season, we'll be looking at these first two chapters in Luke's account. And in each scene and situation, we'll feel this tension. We'll feel sorrow. We'll feel joy. We'll feel the edges of our faith. We'll come to the end of ourselves, so to speak. Because this is what the word always does. It always presses these things out of us. You see, in the tension of sorrow and celebration, we will face our doubts. We'll look at the things that in our own hearts and minds we haven't really reconciled yet. We haven't fully understood. Maybe we haven't even brought to the Lord in humility and honesty before. And so what we need to talk about is not how do we avoid ever doubting God, but rather how do we turn to him? How do we return to the Lord with honesty and humility in the middle of those doubts and in the middle of those fears? 
See, we, we don't have to be a people that cover our doubts, that don't admit our, our doubts and the wrestling that we go through to believe and trust and obey God. We come to him with a contrite, humble spirit and say, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm falling short in. And, and really this narrative that we'll look at today, I think gives language to that and is a, is a testimony to that. And so as we come to this word, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Let's bring our doubts and let's ask that he'd help us with it. And so, Heavenly Father, we do want to come to you honestly. We want to come to you humbly. And, and it's, hard, it's hard to do that because I know that I can believe that really I need to come uh, not only to you, but to others with like this strength of faith. Like no matter what, I'm going to believe. Like I, I, want, I want that to be the hallmark of what people say and think about me. That that Jason, he had strong faith. He trusted God. And, and though I, I, I want that, I desire that God's it's true, I, I'm not always there. And, and that when this tension of a year like we've experienced, when we face that and we acknowledge that, there are plenty of places along the way, Father, that I've doubted you. That I've doubted your goodness, I've doubted your grace, I've doubted your provision, I've doubted your character, I've doubted your very existence. And so God, help us as a church family, as men and women, as brothers and sisters, help us to come to you with our doubts during this season that we might see in the advents of Christ, the, the truth and beauty and the power of God. Uh, and and may, may Jesus, may he be the one that, that settles uh, our souls, even in the midst of our doubts, that we would be a people who trust you, that we'd be a people who are honest and humble before you. So it's to that end that I want to be available to you. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we said, the first two chapters of Luke um, are really the, the first movements here is, are these two narratives, these two birth narratives. Um, but it's the parents who will be in the foreground first um, before their children really take center stage uh, for the rest of Luke's account. First, we're going to look at Elizabeth and Zechariah, who will be the mom and dad of John the Baptizer, who will be the forerunner uh, of Jesus. And we'll look at the story also of Mary. Mary, of course, is the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. And Luke gives us this wonderful narrative uh, and, and picture of the story of them learning of the coming of their children and, and their own story of wrestling through uh, all of that. And while the second narrative or the second thrust of this story that we're going to look at today focuses on, on Mary and what it means for her to be a mom, what it means for her to hear that she is not just going to be a mom, but a mom of the son of the living God, the Messiah, the hope of the world. Um, the first story, though, doesn't zoom in on Elizabeth, but zooms in on her husband, Zachariah. And what we'll observe in the story of Mary and first Zechariah are two very different ways of responding to God's word. Simply put, Zechariah doubts and Mary believes. Zechariah doubts and Mary believes. So let's meet Zechariah. Look at verse 5 in Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both religious before God, or excuse me, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we get a picture of these two people, this married couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Uh, Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest. 
Not, not only that, but Luke tells us a few things about their biography, that they are righteous. In fact, they are blameless under the law of God. That doesn't mean that they never sin. It's, it's, a, it's a caricature of them being faithful and obedient to God's word, that they are submissive to uh, the things that he has taught them in what you and I know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They, they're, they are people of the book. They are people who read and love and know the word of God and, and do their very best to obey and submit themselves to the teachings of God. And so they are priest and the daughter of a priest, and they are righteous and blameless before God. And, and we find out two other things about them, that they uh, had no children and they were old. So as, as we read this story, they are unlikely candidates to be parents, um, but they're incredibly righteous and they are incredibly faithful. And so uh, something that, that Luke is trying to tell us as readers right away is that many in the ancient world believed that if you desired children, prayed for them and didn't get them, then it was because you were a sinner and there was something wrong with you. And, and, and therefore, Luke is telling us that's not the case. These, these are righteous, blameless before God, and yet they are advanced in years and they still don't have children. And in, and in Zechariah's old age, his righteous old age, um, he was about to participate in something he likely was only, only going to do once or twice in his entire life. And he was going to be selected to um, enter into a holy place within the temple and burn incense. And in the middle of this moment, this uh, once or maybe twice in a lifetime moment for a priest, he has an encounter with an angel. Look at verse 8 and we'll look at it all the way to verse 17. Now, while uh, he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers your prayer rather has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John and he will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Long story short, Zechariah is going to be a daddy. And, there, there, and this was something, notice that he... And Elizabeth had been praying for. Not only so, but this boy had a unique role to play as the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of the Lord. Did you hear that language that he was going to prepare or be used by God to prepare for the Lord a people? That's what Gabriel means, the angel, that, that he, when he said that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who spoke the words of God. And so he's going to go forward in that spirit, in that power. Now, Gabriel is an angel. And the only other place in the Bible that we, we find him by name is in Daniel. And Daniel is this messianic text, this end times eschatological kind of text that gives a picture of the fulfillment of God's promises. And so when Gabriel shows up, it should tune any Jewish audience and particularly 
the one to whom he comes, namely Zechariah, um, that, that something about end time, something about fulfillment, something about God's promises is about to come down. Because this is kind of the role that Gabriel has, that he is going to be speaking about the day of the Lord. He's going to be speaking about God's generational promises now coming to bear in real space and real time. So you see, <clears throat> too often for us, when we think about end times, when we think about eschatology, we think about wrath and judgment and the day of the Lord, everybody getting their comeuppance, right? And to be sure, we've looked at through Romans that the day of the Lord truly is a day when the wrath of God will come. But it's so much more than that. That's an aspect of it. What what the the end times or the eschaton at the fullness of time, what will happen more than anything else is that all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. All the promises of God will be realized for the people of God, for the entire world. And so th- this should have put Zechariah on notice that something special is happening, not just with him, but more holistically. So this is not just about Zechariah. This is about God bringing fulfillment to all of his people. Therefore, the fact uh, of the matter is, is so in line with what uh, Gabriel is saying that, that John will uh, not only have joy and gladness in himself, but through his birth, he says that many will rejoice and he'll be used by God, verse 16 says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. In fact, Luke uses three different words for joy in this passage to communicate the fullness of this responsibility and this reality. So ultimately, the, the eschaton, when, when all things are realized, when all the promises of God will be fulfilled, it's not, it's not wrath and vindication and, and, and justice, at least in the form that we often think about it, but the wholeness of God's justice, which produces joy that will be in the foreground, that will be in focus for all those who are in Christ. And th- so therefore, John has this role to play, is what Gabriel is saying, this role to play within the story of God bringing joy to the world, bringing joy to the world. Therefore, celebration is in order. Zachariah and Elizabeth. Prayers have not only been answered, they're, they're going to be parents, but more than that, God is fulfilling for all of their people the messianic promises that he has whispered and announced and promised from centuries, from generations past. See, God has done a great work, and now Zechariah is being invited, as, as in his fatherhood, he's being invited in to be a participant in this work and purposes of God. But Zechariah hesitates. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So this is, may seem like a legit question, right? Zechariah is like, I'm old, I'm far along. And if you think I'm far along, like, he uses different language for his, his, his wife. But it seems clear from the context that, that Zechariah is not exactly asking a question because he lacks information. He's asking a question because he thinks he has all the information he needs. That's very different. Church, we need to hear this. There's a very uh, distinct nuance from asking a question because you know you lack the information and asking a question because you think you have all the information. Am I preaching to you yet? Zachariah believes he has all the information that he needs. Therefore, he's asking a kind of gotcha question. I'm too old. So how is this going to happen? My wife is too old. So how is this going to happen? It's a roadblock in his mind to God fulfilling this word. 
to God fulfilling this particular promise and specifically the promise that now the angel is making or the word that the angel is delivering to him. So this is not like Gideon and Judges laying out a fleece to, to have some sort of response or to hear from God. This is Zechariah putting up an obstacle and saying, I don't think that this can happen. I don't think that this can happen at all. So, so really the biblical connection here is with the laugh of Sarah. When Abraham and Sarah heard that they were going to have a child in in Genesis 18, Sarah laughs. See, God promised them a son. They were also righteous and blameless. They were also advanced in their years, and they also had no children. So the promise heard in Genesis chapter 18 met by a laugh is now repeated in many ways to Zechariah here in Luke chapter 1, where Sarah laughs, Zechariah doubts. Zechariah doubts. And so Gabriel's not really amused. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah does not believe God. In other words, he believes perhaps that God lacks an ability where there's some deficiency that Zechariah sees with himself as a candidate to be a servant of the Lord, to be someone who the Lord uses for his purposes. So he says, I don't, I don't know if you know, but I'm really old. Maybe you got the wrong address, Gabriel. Go to the, the other temple or the other priest when he's supposed to be serving here. I'm, I'm not your guy. I'm too old. Let the Lord know. Or he simply lacks trust. He lacks an ability to simply submit to God's word in that particular moment. And so his initial reaction to the great work of God and this invitation of of God to join his purposes is to find a reason why such joy is not actually possible. And so God shuts his mouth. And so it would seem, this is really fascinating, if one of John the baptizer's roles will be to turn the fathers to their sons, it seems like he's going to have to start with his own dad. See, here... We have this mingling happening of celebration and sorrow, this this gift of a new child and yet the sorrow of disbelief or of seeing a lack of ability or some hindrance that Zechariah has within himself. There's there's trust and doubt and joy and despair. Now think about this. Just let's be human about it. How many times must have Elizabeth and Zechariah prayed to have a child? How How many tears were shed. When, when Elizabeth, perhaps feeling, thinking maybe something was changing in her body, maybe this was the time. Maybe this was it. This was the time they'd been praying for. Only to realize that she was not pregnant or she didn't carry to term. Can you even imagine how long they not only prayed for children, but had to endure within this community where children were likely playing all the time? Many of you know that grief. Many of you know that longing, that desire for what it is to to wait upon God for something that you believe you're asking for in faith, you're asking for in humility. See, all of these things are at work inside of Zechariah and Elizabeth's heart. 
They likely battled depression and anger and doubting God completely and his existence completely. To be sure, their righteousness persisted. Luke 1 is clear about this. And yet, despite the feelings of pregnancy and longing and, and what it was like to be in their community, like no child ever came. No child was ever born. See, it's hard to blame Zechariah because many of us don't trust joy either. But as we'll see in the very next section, the very next moment, joy and trust seem instinctive. They seem natural to Elizabeth. This, this is her, her visceral and immediate response. She gave herself immediately over to celebration and let it swallow up her sorrow. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It seems not only is Elizabeth immediately able to give herself over to trust and belief and joy, but it also seems like she's been carrying some shame. You notice that that language that there is this this pain and confusion and weariness, but it, it begins to melt away in the presence of the Lord and in the face of his grace and generosity. See, joy overwhelms her doubts. Notice specifically what, what it says. There are two particular acts of God that she credits, that, that she it gives as, as a witness, as a testimony, as a story, as a proclamation of why it is that she has this joy, why it is that she has this trust. Notice, is because the Lord looked on her, looked to her, looked at her, and he took away her reproach. See, Elizabeth's joy is not simply about being pregnant and this sort of feeling, this sentimentalness about or rather sentimentality about now becoming a mom. It's, it's that she's been, been reassured, that she has been grounded, that she has been comforted, that she has been convinced of God's love. She's been seen by him. He has done a work in her life. The second story is Mary. Like Elizabeth, Mary is taken by joy, not simply through pregnancy, but because uh, of the one who has given her this child. You see, because who God is, we can trust who, and rather, we can trust in him and we can embrace the joy that comes from him because of who he is. And so in, in this particular moment, we'll, we'll see God's character put on display. Specifically, we'll see his grace and his power. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Immediately, Luke makes it clear that Mary's story and Mary's response is very different than Zachariah's. Notice, she is immediately trying to discern the words of the messenger. 
It's a word that means to be thoughtful and, and to reason through dialogue and conversation. She wants to lean in. She's not being dismissive. She's not being doubtful. She has real questions and she is seeking to truly understand. In other words, right away, we sense from Mary that she's admitting she doesn't have all the information. She's admitting that she does not know. And it's clear that Gabriel sees her response differently than he saw Zechariah's. He does not shut her mouth. He engages her curiosity. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Okay, so long story short, Mary is going to be the mother of the son of the living God, the king of Israel, Jesus Christ. Likely something that Mary was not expecting when she was struggling to understand what was going on. See, if uh, doubt did not set in at first, surely it would at this point. Surely it would by now. But there is something unique at work within Mary. There's something going on which makes her exceptionally different especially clear in the juxtaposition with Zechariah's story. See, we're given insight into the distinction by this repeated word that uh, Luke uses, that Gabriel uses. It's that word favor. Have you noticed it? Notice in verse 28 that Gabriel doesn't first call Mary by name. What does he call her? Favored one. The word for favored is closely associated in the Greek language with the word for grace. So the angel is speaking to Mary through an identity that is marked by grace as one who is the beneficiary of grace. So not only so, but he affirms that the Lord is with her. And if that weren't enough, Gabriel answers her curiosity by encouraging Mary that she has what? Found favor with God. What we learn about the works of God here in Luke chapter one thus far is that God does great things and he does them by grace. He is coming to Mary through grace. The angel is speaking to Mary by grace. Mary is the one who has received grace. So from the very beginning of the life of Jesus, he is welcoming this woman into his story and into the story all by an unmerited favor from God. See, with all of this, we would expect Mary to have more questions. But her next and last question is perhaps the most human question you could possibly think to ask. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's impossible to get more basic than this. And, and, and yet, and yet it's, so, it's so human. I mean, think about all that has just been said. He, he is going to... Uh, have a throne. He's going to be in the line of, of King David that he, you're going to call him Jesus. God saves like all of this incredible language, this incredible glory that will fit into this body that will be called her son. Right. And, and the thing though, that, that Mary heard, it's almost like she didn't hear anything else except that she was going to have a kid. It's like she didn't hear anything else except that she was going to be 
a mom. And so her next question and her, her really in some respects, her only question is how is this going to be? And, and quite literally it says, cause I've never been with a man. She simply wants to know how could she become pregnant without having sex? It's this basic question that she gets to that, that, that she wants to know. In other words, she asked this question. She doesn't have information. How is this going to happen if this is true about who I am and this is true about the situation? This is not dismissive. This is not doubt. This is incredibly humble. This is incredibly human. This is the most basic question she could possibly ask. See, see Zechariah dismisses joy and doubts God because of what he thinks he knows. Mary, though, boldly presses forward towards joy. She leans in to seek more understanding. She asks the angel, how is this going to happen? How will this be since I am a virgin? This, she admits, likely goes beyond her ability, beyond her knowledge. See, church, questions are not the opposite of faith. And in fact, it's, it's just the opposite. In many ways, refusing to ask questions reveals our true doubt and disbelief or fear, really, of God. See, we, we only ask and are humble with our, our curiosity and questions with God when we believe that he listens to us, when we believe that he cares about us, when we believe that he actually knows the answer, when we believe that he wants to be known. Right? So we actually have to believe something about God to come to him with our questions. Are you tracking with me? If I think he'll dismiss me and doesn't care, I'm not going to go to him. If I don't think that he knows, I'm not going to go to him. If I don't think that he loves me, I'm not going to go to him. If I don't think he wants to be known, in other words, he wants to be mercurial and, and mysterious and hidden, then I'm not going to go to him because he's not going to communicate the truth and the brilliance and, and the reality of who he is. See, when I ask God a real question, I am saying at one and the same time, you are good, you are wise, you are full of knowledge, you're full of power, you're full of love, you care about me, you see me, you know. We're saying so much when we come to God with a real question. See, real questions come from those who are truly being obedient, those who truly actually believe. It may feel like a doubt, in many respects it probably is, but when we bring our doubts to God, we are actually demonstrating our faith. Did you hear that? When we bring our doubts to God, we are actually demonstrating our faith. Particularly, what we are demonstrating is that we know, we trust, we believe that he loves us. And even if we don't feel it, we know it and we come to him with a contrite and humble heart. Once again, Gabriel receives her question as a real question and he gives her a real answer. Look at verse 35. Luke 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, uh, who was called barren, for nothing shall be impossible with God. Think about all that information. She said, how is this going to be since I'm a virgin? And he's like, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Um, and the child that will be born, born to you will be the son of God. Not only that, but I'm just going to give you this bit of information. She has not sent out announcement um, post yet. But just so you know, uh, your 
a relative Elizabeth is also expecting a child. She's six months along. And remember, she was supposed to be barren, but nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary has just taken in a lot. And it would be completely legit. In fact, it'd be completely expected if she had a few follow-up questions. But she doesn't. Or at least they're not recorded here in Luke, so they, so they certainly were not the point. Here's, here's how she responds. After getting all of that information, and Mary said in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that wild? That's, a, that's, a, that's fantastic. That's amazing. She, she just heard that the Holy Spirit is going to make her pregnant with the Son of God and her relative, to whom everyone said was barren. She like, carried this shame within her community, right? She's also going to have a baby. She's six months along. It's nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary's like, yeah, okay. This is, this is the most incredible news ever. And Mary has no follow-up questions. Why? There's no way she, she had all of her questions answered. There was no way that she was like, okay, I get that. Makes sense. I'm down. Perfectly clear. <laughs> I totally understand every bit of that. No, what Mary demonstrates is a willingness to obey and submit without all the information. Without all of her questions answered. She, she to this point, only knows a couple of things. God is gracious and she's been invited in by grace and God is powerful. There is nothing that's impossible with him. That was enough. Mary does not have all the information, yet she responds with humility and surrender. She trusts and obeys. See, it seems that, that her ability or, or even her reaction, her instinct, instinct to do this is simply because of who she has seen God to be in that moment, which completely lines up with everything that she's ever known God to be. And likely she's very young, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that space, right? And, and yet she's grown up hearing about the grace of God, hearing about the faithfulness of God, hearing about the power of God. And so when she hears an angel say, your favor, that, that this grace is the way in which we're going to navigate our relationship, the way in which God has, has held you fast is because he favors you, unmerited favor, unmerited love and grace. And that he can do anything. She's She's ready. That was enough for her. See, this is the difference. The difference found between Zechariah and Mary's story is that ultimately, it's not that all of her doubts were washed away and that all of the information she needed was given. But when she said, I don't have all the information, but I know that God is gracious and I know that God is powerful. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See, really? That's all she knows at this point, God's grace and God's power. And in her obedience, what she's saying is that's all I need. Do you need more? Do I? See, everything we know about Zechariah, everything we've learned about him, even just from this chapter, tells us he should be the guy that we follow. In, in other words, in the ancient world and in a literary sense, Zechariah, um, should be the positive example to us and someone else, in this case, Mary, should be the negative example. Let, let's, just, let's just think about this for a second. Zechariah is the man and he's the focus of the story opening up and, and Mary is a woman. 
He is a religious leader, righteous and blameless before the Lord. He's a priest. She's unknown and unmarried. Zechariah is old. Mary is young. See, there's a direct contrast running through the entire story between these two. But what we will learn throughout Luke is that the kingdom of God is always flipped on its head. It's always flipped upside down. It's always unexpected. It's always not what we would put together on our own earthly logic. In many respects, it's almost always the opposite. So Zachariah doubts, his mouth is shut, and Mary embraces joy by faith, and soon she's going to sing a song. Now let's be clear. It's not like some of you are Zachariah and others are like Mary. So the point here is to not go... Which one should I be like? Mary seems like the right choice. I'm going to go be like her. As if the point of the passage is to simply trust God and stop doubting. Go be like Mary. A lot of times we boil down biblical characters simply to examples, right? I mean, it sounds nice. It sounds righteous. It sounds really like you could preach that. Choose this day. Are you going to be Zechariah? Are you going to be Mary? I would choose Mary, right? That just seems so shallow and so obvious because after all... That, if that already makes sense to us, I don't need my heart to be changed. I don't need any renovation to take place within my, within my mind. I don't need to confess sin. I just need to try to be more like Mary. See, I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling with doubts, I'm struggling to believe, my knee-jerk reaction is to just try to be Mary. Just trust and obey. Just trust and obey. Just sort of mustering up this sort of practical courage, if you will, if you will before God. But, but the thing is, I can't just tell myself to believe. I can't just tell myself to have faith. In fact, that, that, that's what I think we all just try to do naturally. That, that's our response. But that's not what this passage is about. About just simply reading and just say, be like Mary, not like Zachariah. This passage doesn't divide the room. It doesn't divide our church into saints and sinners. The point here, church, is that we are all Zachariah. We don't have to choose. We don't have to assess our life. We are all Zechariah. All of the scriptures testify to this. See, we all doubt. We all don't believe God answers our prayers. We all doubt his grace. We all doubt his power. See, but here's the incredible incredible thing when you juxtapose these two stories. Here's where it gets really good. See, while Zechariah's story reveals my sin and shame and doubt and my lack of readiness to submit myself to God, Mary's story exposes God's grace and power. In, in, in other words, that means that the way out of our doubts and disbelief and disobedience is, is not simply to muster up some sort of biblical or rather religious courage, right? It's to recall God's grace and to submit to his power. To recall God's grace and to submit to his power. You see, faith is demonstrated when we obey God, when we have this willingness to obey him without all of the information. That means that that through his grace and through his power, we actually learn to speak and believe the words here of Mary, that I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And unless we admit that we are Zechariah, we can never say those words of Mary. Unless we first do that, they'll never be real. They'll simply be words that we read here and try to just just say out loud in different spaces and moments of doubt. See, somehow, despite hearing some of the most spectacular news ever and, and being invited into this moment of history, she's so ready. She's down. She's ready to submit willing 
and not able, but willing, doesn't have all that she needs except in the Lord. And that's why this is such good news, right? If, if Zachariah is, is, the hero, is the hero in this situation, and we're like, oh, I gotta be righteous, I gotta be blameless, I've gotta be a priest, I've gotta have this once in a lifetime experience in the temple, I've gotta be married and faithful, right? I've gotta keep praying for a kid even though we don't in our old age, like all of these things. But if Mary's shown to be the one who is the recipient of God's grace and submissive to his power, you can be obscure. You can be forgotten. You can be someone that would seem on the outside of God's plan. You, you can be someone who has this very ordinary life to this point. See, this is such good news because this means that our life is a story whose resolution is not dependent upon us, but, but rather established, sustained, and secured by God through his grace and by his power. In a word, it's, it's all about Jesus, because that, that's ultimately what we've been learning in the study of Romans. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's that power, there's that faith, that belief, right, in God's grace to anyone who believes the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he is a God who draws near to us in our doubts, in our fears, in our obscurities, in the ones who don't look all that spectacular and awesome in a worldly sense. He is the God who calls us into his purposes, not because we are significant in the world's eyes, but because we are his in the truest of sense. See, grace is God's unmerited favor, eternally demonstrated on the cross. If you are doubting at all, but particularly if you are doubting his grace and his love, look to the cross. It is there we see a God who is not waiting for you to muster up enough faith to impress him. Instead, we see a God who demonstrates his love for us while we are doubters, while we are haters, while we are still dead in our sin and our trespasses. Seeing that kind of grace does something to us. It's so counterintuitive. It's so against the grain of this world. It begins to chip away at that vision that I have of myself, that I need to make myself. I need to pursue excellence. I need to pursue significance for my name's sake. And that when I fall short of that, God's grace isn't sufficient. And so when we don't believe and trust that God's grace is sufficient and that his love is true, we say things like, I know that God has forgiven me for whatever we've done, but I just can't forgive myself. That's doubting his grace. That's doubting his love. That's beginning to actually have a different kind of God, a, a God of success, a God of wealth, a God of, of money, these sorts of things that we think will promise us peace and they never deliver. And so we look at God's grace and it doesn't match the things that we have begun to submit ourselves to in this world. And so we begin to doubt him. Power is God's ability, his desire, his opportunity to do as he sees fit, to do as he pleases. If you are doubting his power, look to the resurrection. It is there that we see Satan's sin and death and all the powers of this dark and evil age are no match for the God that Luke tells us for whom nothing is impossible. That God's grace and his power leads us then to faith, a kind of faith that has great 
joy. This is how we do the battle with death. This is how we draw near, is that we get our eyes on the cross, we get our eyes on the resurrection. And so, friends, this, this is really where it's practical when we actually talk to each other in the middle of a pandemic, when we talk to each other in the middle of uh, injustices and pain and brokenness and suffering and sorrow, is, is our tendency when, when we doubt is to sort of compliment or, or encourage someone's ego or, or their self-concept. But, but that's not what I need. That's my problem. That, that's, that's why I'm Zachariah. I'm Zachariah because I believe within myself I have all that I need. I have all the information that I need. And, and therefore my questions are really revealing all that I know. They're not actually seeking information. So, so when, I'm, when I'm in sorrow, when I'm in shame, when I'm in sin, when I'm in doubt, what I need to be reminded, I need my eyes to be taken off myself because sin has actually centered myself. I've centered myself in my life. That's what led me to sin. So what I really need, I need my eyes to get on the cross. I need my eyes to get on the resurrection. I need my eyes to get off of me, right? When, when I see myself, it leads to doubt and despair, frustration, all, all these sorts of things. But when we set our eyes on, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame, it breaks the shackles of doubt. It doesn't mean that I feel something different right away. It doesn't mean that I still don't have real questions, but it means that I submit and I can say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't have it all figured out, but I trust the God who died for me on the cross. I trust the God who rose over Satan's sin, victory over Satan's sin and death. See, it begins to produce this faith in me when we, when we face our doubts with the cross and the resurrection, with the grace and the power of God. This is a type of joy that we only experience in the middle of surrender. And that's what we see at the conclusion of this passage when Mary visits Elizabeth. Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered to the house, uh, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Look at this. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How beautiful. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed. So you see that church who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What, what we're given here is really a story of any pregnancy, of any situation like this, when, when you find out that you're expecting, you, you certainly tell your family, but you also call up your girlfriend. You also draw near to that woman in your life who is your relative or your, your, your best friend or the one who's walked with you or prayed for you in that particular season of life. And so what we see here is this, this ancient tradition taking place where these two women are drawn to one another, to encourage each other, to comfort one another, to tell stories of God's faithfulness, to encourage each other in the middle of this. And please notice 
that it's through joy being experienced by Mary and Elizabeth that John can't even contain himself. Little three months from being born John the baptizer, Jesus enters the room. John perks up to his God-given role to say, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Grace and power just walked through the room, walked into the room, right? John can't help himself. He leaps for joy. See, this is what happens when faith begins to mark us. When faith begins to shape us, when the grace and power of God, we can say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. We receive his grace. We say, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. We receive his his power. We hear of his power. We say, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. See, this is the paradox of this Advent season, that our greatest joy is discovered only through serving the Lord, submitting ourselves, being humble before him. This is so counterintuitive to our culture that we believe that our greatest joy will be, will be found when, when we submit to nothing but our own devices, our own inclinations and our own desires. We believe that's where joy will be found. We believe when we remove the shackles of submission to another, that we'll find out our true self and our true freedom. But the paradox of the Advent season is that we find out through trusting and obeying the Lord, even when we don't have all the information, that's where our joy is found. See, left to ourselves, trusting our own logic, our own intuition, we become like Zechariah. Our mouths will be stopped. Notice, the plans of God are not thwarted. He will accomplish his will without us. He doesn't need us, but he desires that we would be a part of his great Work And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Mary is a teenager about to step into the world, 13, 14, 15 years old, and she's going to start showing. And she's going to have to deal with the implications of a community and their judgmentalism and their gossip and their mean-spirited things that they'd say about her. Elizabeth was about to give birth uh, to, to a dude who was going to be living in animal skins and eating insects. I mean, she was going to be ridiculed. John would be hated and then beheaded. Jesus would be rejected and then crucified. See, when we agree to follow Jesus, when we receive this gracious invitation and this power, we receive this kind of joy that even endures all the shame and brokenness and death and disease and and powers of this dark and evil age. We continue to say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, but it is incredibly costly. This is why we must bring our doubts to the Lord. Because the only thing we may have in this life with Christ is joy. What are you doubting right now about God? Mind you, not about your expectations for him, but about his word that he has said he would do, that he said he would be, that you are believing right now that he is unable and unwilling to fulfill. What are you doubting? Well, then today we need to get your eyes on the cross. I need to get my eyes on the cross. We need to get our eyes on the resurrection and to see how God has been gracious to you. How has he? In what ways has he demonstrated his power? See, recalling his grace, submitting to his power, calms our anxiety. It doesn't give us all the information. Calms our anxiety, leads us to trust, to believe and to say, I'm the Lord's servant, no matter what he calls us to. Because this kind of joy changes everything. Changes my disposition. It changes my orientation to the world. It changes what I'm willing to sacrifice and lay down. See, the question today is not, are you Zachariah or Mary? We are all Zachariah. And through the work of Jesus, who draws near to the doubters, who draws near to the sinner, 
we can become those who then, by God's grace and power, say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to you according to my word. So Father, that's our prayer. Would that be true, not for our glory and not by our power, but for your glory and by your power, by your might. And we say that in Jesus' name.